Well, good morning again. Uh, we'll be picking back up in Matthew. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 20. Uh, last week, we finished up Matthew 19 with Matt. He was speaking on the rich young ruler and how the ruler went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. And after speaking to Jesus, um, he, you know, he, he sees all that he could have and, and sees all that Jesus offers, and yet he goes away sorrowful with his many riches. And following this encounter, Peter, uh, who really seems to be the spokesman for the disciples, um, asked a question that maybe uh, all the disciples had in their minds as well. And the question has to do with rewards that believer will receive as a result of their service for Christ. They had just seen a man who was unwilling to let go of his riches, to let go of all the worldly goods he had to follow Christ. And the disciples, on the other hand, they had left all. They left all the comforts and pleasures of uh, being at home uh, with you know, certain people. They left sometimes jobs. They left all the worldly comforts to follow Christ. And Peter, in somewhat of a boastful way, asked Jesus, See, we have left all and followed. Therefore, what shall we have? It seems that Peter had this, as Matt pointed out last week, a bargaining attitude towards his service with Christ. And he was essentially asking him, look, look at everything that we've given you. Look at what we've given up for you. What's in it for us? And the Lord actually tells Peter, believe it or not, uh, that, that the answer to his question, he says, anyone who has left house or brother or sister or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my namesake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. So in, in God's reward system, it states that uh, God will repay abundantly for the sacrifices that those who serve him uh, make for his service, even up to a hundred times what they gave uh, up for the service. And on top of that, uh, God has also promised eternal life uh, when they place their trust in him. So you have all those rewards that God offers but then the chapter ends in, in 19 with a statement that we'll talk about more today. It says, but many who are first will be last and last first. And today's passage is a parable that explains what he meant by that. And so let's look at that parable. It's found in Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. That will be the passage we'll look at today. And it reads, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard, and went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went out, and again about the sixth and ninth hour, and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have only worked one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, 
I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few chosen. <clears throat> so we have a fairly straightforward passage uh, in terms of um, the overall uh, quick view of it. Uh, and sometimes, well, for me at least, when I first read this uh, parable, it, se- it felt a little bit unfair. It seemed as though uh, I, w- I just was scratching my head at the end and I thought, how is this right? How is this just? But I think as we look through this more uh, closely, verse by verse, we'll really understand what Jesus is teaching us through it, and we'll really understand uh, the principles that he's trying to um, underscore here. So to understand this passage, we need to remember that this is a continuation of the conversation from the last chapter on rewards, rewards that will be given for faithful service for Christ. And as we find out pretty quickly, God's reward system is not always what we would expect it to be. So as we go through, I just want to do, like I said, a quick overview first, and then we'll look at it more in detail, verse by verse, and we'll take away application from it. So in verse 1 and 2, just as a general overview, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard, and and now when he agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So the landowner here is the Lord. He owns everything, and those working in his vineyard are believers, or as this parable describes them, they're laborers in his vineyard. So this landowner, he goes out early in the morning, and in Jewish reckoning of time, the day would begin at 6 a.m. And so let's just assume the landowner goes out around 6 a.m. and he finds his first group of laborers. This would begin a typical 12-hour workday. Typically, it was 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And uh, as he sent them out, uh, notice, though, that before they're sent out, they actually negotiated with the landowner for their wages. They both agreed and were happy to accept one denarius a day uh, for their work, which is actually a very fair wage for a 12-hour uh, work period. And so with that agreement established, they go off and uh, enter the vineyard. Verses 3 and 4 says, He went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right you will receive. So they went. So now this would be 9 a.m., three hours already into the workday. He finds other people idle without any work, and he offers them jobs. But notice that they didn't negotiate the wages. They just simply state that whatever is fair, whatever is right regarding to wages, we trust that you will pay us. And so this next group goes off and serves the vineyard, uh, into the vineyard, after already being three hours into the day. Verse 5 says, again, he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did likewise. So again, here we are at the sixth hour, which is noon. Is this me? Am I hitting this still? Okay. All right. So here we go at the, at the sixth hour. This is noon now. And then we also go out at the ninth hour. So this would be 3 p.m. And again, no negotiation, no negotiation of wages. The laborers just trust that the landlord is going to pay them whatever is a fair wage. And off to work they go. Finally, read in 6 and 7 that about the 11th hour, likewise, they found them standing idle and said, why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said, because no one hired us. And he said to them, likewise, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, you will receive. So here we go at 5 p.m. This is one hour before a typical workday would have ended. You have these workers standing idle. 
And you know, sometimes you see this even if you go to your local hardware store, you go to Home Depot or Lowe's, you'll see construction workers, people who are just looking for day labor type of jobs, and they have been standing there since early morning, and no one's hired them. But they're not because they're not hardworking, not because they're not qualified, not because they're lazy. They just simply haven't found work. They haven't found someone who would hire them for the day. And so you have these, these laborers wanting to work, desiring to work. No one's hired them. And so this landowner hires these men, again, with the promise that he's going to pay them whatever is right for their work. So the day ends an hour later. Now we're at 6 p.m. And it's interesting because in today's society, we typically get paid in like weekly or biweekly or sometimes even monthly payments. But here in, in this passage, and typically would have been of, of that day's um, payments, would be at the end of the day, you would receive your wages. And it was to ensure that each laborer had enough money to put food on the table for the next day and support their wives and children and, and any other family they might have. And so now payment time comes, and it's interesting to note the order in which the distribution starts. The landowner begins with the person who was hired last at 5 p.m., the person who only worked one hour. And what does he give them? He gives them a denarius, an entire day's wage. And that's, that's a ton of money. I mean, to think you've made an entire day's salary for working one hour. That is incredible. That's, that's the most money you probably would ever make any other job. And... Um, Starting with that last person who only worked an hour, he began going towards progressively towards that person who got hired first at 6 a.m. And the point is that this order of, of handing out uh, rewards or handing out payment uh, for their work, it would be that the person at 6 a.m. would be able to see what the very first person or the very last person at uh, 5 p.m. Would, would have received. And so if you're that person hired at 6 a.m., it would, and you see this person who's only worked one hour, and you see him receive a denarius. Even though you agreed for a denarius a day, your mind might think, well, if he got a denarius for one hour, and I work 12, maybe I'll get 12. And, and you start you know, anticipating that you're going to get more as he goes down the line. And um, as you wait your turn, you just keep thinking, oh boy, this is going to be a lot more than I, I bargained for today, but uh, this is going to be great. And... At the end of the turn, he comes to you, and you receive one denarius, just like everyone else did, just like you had agreed to in the beginning. And uh, that was not okay, though, with the person who agreed with it, because in verse 11, he says, um, and when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying that these last men who only worked one hour, you have made equal with us, who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. These 12-hour these workers... Uh, we're not too happy with the landowner uh, because, you know, they said that we deserve more based upon how you treated other people. And um, there's an interesting response, though, that the landowner gives. He says in verse 13, But he answered one of them, saying, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give the last man the same as you. And so here's the lesson that Jesus is trying to convey. The landowner reminds them that these people are upset when they were the ones who agreed to work for one denarius. They were the ones who bargained for their wages. And so was the landowner unfair in paying them exactly what they asked for? The answer is no. He's not unfair. The laborers got exactly what they asked for. They agreed upon a denarius. They got a denarius at the end of the day. The other laborers, though, as we pointed out as we went through each one, they didn't bargain. 
They just decided that they were going to leave the payment up to the landowner and accept whatever he felt was right and just to give them. Both men, or both men, whether you're hired later or early on, the landowner knew they had needs. They knew they had needs for supporting their wives, children, kids. Um, and so the landowner in this situation extends extraordinary amounts of grace to all the workers. He didn't pay them according to what would a normal hourly rate be. He could have very well just paid them one hour, and that would have been fair. But he gives them more than they uh, really would have worked for normally at any other job because he knew their needs. He wanted to support them. He wanted to, to give them uh, rewards for their work despite working 12 times less than the first person who got hired. Instead of charging them by the hour or paying them by the hour, the landowner extends grace towards them. And as the, uh, the first man who got hired said, these men were undeserving of these wages. But the landowner replies essentially saying, it's my money and I can choose to extend grace and pay them the same as you if I would like to. Isn't it my money to do with as I wish? He then says in verse 15, is it not lawful for me to do with what I wish with my own things or is your eye evil because I'm good? And what the landowner means by that is saying, are you envious? Are you jealous because of my generosity towards these other laborers? And that in itself just exposes the wickedness of the hearts of the first laborers. They're, they had agreed to these wages and now they're jealous at the landowner because he's being so gracious to other people. And then Jesus again ends with that same phrase we saw in the end of chapter 19. So the, so the last will be first and the first last, for many are called, but few chosen. So that was just a very quick overview. Um, but now, what does that all mean? How does that apply to us? Uh, what can we really take away from that? So, again, remind ourselves, the landowner is the Lord. As believers, we are laborers in this vineyard, serving the landowner, serving God. And at the end of our service here on earth, when service is finally done at the end of the day, he will reward us for our service towards him. And I just want to reemphasize again that this is an entirely new approach that we need to take with considering rewards, with considering how we will be rewarded for our service. Because typically we think about rewards, we think if I do X amount of things, I will be given X amount of rewards for it, because typically that's what we get at work. We do X amount of hours, we get X amount of payment. But it's an entirely new system with the Lord. And certainly God does promise specific rewards for specific services. I don't have the time to go into all of them, but there are specific crowns that is talked about that God will give to certain, uh, to certain people based upon what they've done for him. And even in chapter 19, Jesus told his disciples that they will be sitting on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So there are certainly uh, specific rewards that will be given for service. But the point is that God desires to reward his people for service. And in God's economy... It doesn't always look fair, at least according to the worldly perspective. But we need to realize that God is more than fair, and uh, there's actually going to be, I think, some surprises in the way that God rewards his people. We'll touch on that a little bit more, but first I just want to emphasize the first major point that you can take away from this, and that is that God is sovereign. The land is his, the rewards are his, all of it is his. God has all the resources in both heaven and earth and the universe everywhere. He owns it all. And God can do whatever he wishes to whatever he wants to do, and no one can say anything otherwise. He owns it all. 
Can he not give more to some and less to others if that's what he desires, if that's what his will is? If he owns it all, can he distribute it however he sees fit? In fact, if it wasn't for him sending his son Jesus Christ in the first place, none of us would even have a relationship with God. None of us would even be serving him in his vineyard in the first place to earn a reward. So I think we just need to take a second to realize, first of all, how blessed we are to even be in this vineyard, to even be serving a master who's so gracious and so kind, who not only just provided a way of salvation, but then gives us the opportunity to serve him and then earn rewards for that. I think that's incredible. So that's the first thing. God is sovereign. He can do whatever he wishes with his things. The second thing that we need to realize is that God is fair and God is right in the way he distributes his rewards. The landowner repeatedly here promises that whatever is right, you will receive. As the one who is in charge of distributing these rewards, you can trust that he will do what is right. Um, In Genesis 18.25, they call upon God's righteousness in a situation, and they say, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And as we know it to be true, God will always do what is right and fair. And he paid the men fairly. He paid the men who who bargained for their wages. He paid them fairly. But more often than not, God will be more than fair, as you saw with the rest of the laborers. And in the majority of the cases, he was extremely generous beyond what was expected of them. And to those who bargained for the denarius, he gave them what they negotiated for. But for those who just simply trusted him, saying that, you know what, I trust that you will do what is right, God gave them more than they could have asked for. And so the takeaway in that is that God demonstrates grace and that because he is a gracious and loving God, we shouldn't bargain with him for our wages, for our, for our service for him. But unfortunately, uh, Peter was being like this, like the early laborers who bargained uh, for their wages. He, he basically says, look, this is what I've given up for you. Look what I've done for you kind of attitude. What am I going to receive in return? But I believe that if we are like the other laborers who merely trusted in God's righteousness and him to deal with us fairly, he will reward us and we will be blessed more abundantly than if we try to negotiate our wages. Because in those cases, like I said, they relied upon God's goodness, his fairness, and they received even more. In our lives, do we look at the Lord and say, Lord, I've been a believer 20, 30, 40 years, so when I get to heaven, there better be something good up there for me. I better be rewarded suitably for the things that I've sacrificed for your service. Is that the attitude we have when we approach him? That's the attitude Peter had initially. But the better attitude would be, and the attitude I think we should all have is, Lord, you promised reward in your kingdom for faithful service. I want to wholeheartedly serve you. I want to live my life to honor you, to glorify your name. And through the process, I'm going to leave those rewards up to you, and I will trust that you are going to be more than fair with me. It's far better for us to cast ourselves upon his grace than to bargain with him for certain specific wages that we think we deserve. The third thing we can take away is that grace is not always fair. It's just not sim- it just simply isn't fair. Grace is something that's so foreign to us in our society. We want justice. We want things to be right and fair. If a person works an hour, they should get an hour of pay. If a person does a crime, they should be punished. They should be sent to jail. They should be even executed if it's uh, more horrendous enough. We live in, I would say, a fairly legalistic world where we want what is fair to be fair. And yet, if we all got what we deserved, if we all got what we rightfully earned, 
If we all got what was due to us, we would all end up in hell. It says in the Bible, the wages of sin is death. We, aren't, we earn those wages. Rightfully, we can't argue it. We earned it, and death is due to us. We all sinned before a holy God. We all committed sin against him, and the just reward for that is death. Eternity separated from God. Eternal punishment. And if you want to think, have things that are fair, that's where we should all be. But again, we have to remind ourselves that if you're a believer today, God did not give you what you deserve. God gave you grace. <clears throat> it says in uh, Psalm 103, I read it this morning, but I'll read it again. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. God has been so gracious to us. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I want to let you know that he offers you a way of salvation, an opportunity to have your sins forgiven. It says in the Bible, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. God extended a tremendous amount of grace towards you and I. Grace that we did not deserve. And so as you look at grace, we realize grace isn't fair, and praise God that it isn't. If God demonstrates grace towards us in saving us, then how much more can we expect that he will also extend that grace towards us in distributing rewards towards us. The fourth and, uh, I think, final thing that we can take away as believers in this passage is that we are all equally valuable servants in God's field. Whether your service is through evangelism, through preaching, through encouraging others, through being a prayer warrior, through showing hospitality, through disciplining, uh, discipling new believers, or any of the other gifts that God has given you, the point is that we are all serving our master to the best of our abilities, regardless of how major or minor your role might seem. And in return, we are rewarded graciously by the Lord for our service towards him. Some might think in their service, well, I work harder in my service. I spend more hours serving the Lord. I spend more time doing those things. I devote, and my, my role is more public. I do more things that is more obvious for people to see. How could a brother or sister, who I don't see as, a, as in a, such an obvious role, be rewarded equally for their service? And in a much broader sense, some of the laborers who were hired first in the morning could be a reference to the early disciples, the ones who quite literally bore the heat and the burden of the day. Peter says, you know, we left all and we followed you. These were men, and, men who had forsaken family, friends, the comforts of life. And uh, they've worked through... In the early days of the church, extreme persecution, uh, hardships, many of them died for their faith. And on the other hand, we were born into a, a generation, much like the 11th hour, where a lot of the hard work's already been done. They've already borne the burden of the day, and uh, we haven't borne the brunt of the day to the extent that they have. We haven't been persecuted like they have. And it's interesting, though, that though we are born into this generation or this time period, where there's a rather final and short hour, yet it says that God will reward us equally with the same wages for our labors. If you remember uh, in the passage that many of the laborers desired to work in the 11th hour, they just hadn't been hired. And I think many of us in our day and age would love to have been part of that early church or, or been part of that early generation, but God simply has placed us in the time we live now. And though we may have loved to be part of that, God has us here. And yet, 
no matter what generation or hour or time period God has called us, he counts his labors in his field as worthy, worthy of receiving equal reward for their service. And that, to me, is just incredible. The grace that he extends that, no matter when you were serving, when you joined the vineyard, when you were a part of that, God still rewards you equally for it. And for those who might still be having a little difficulty with the fairness of this all, uh, because it, it really did take me a while to, to, to understand it all, but I was reminded as I thought it through uh, this passage of a precedent that was set in the Old Testament. And uh, it's found in 1 Samuel 30. And the story, I'll give you the backstory, is the Amalekites had just raided a city during the times of David. The Amalekites had taken the Israelites' wives and children captive. And after seeking the Lord in prayer, David uh, is told by the Lord to pursue and to recover all that's been taken from him. And so David takes with him 600 men, and they pursue the Amalekites. And they, their hopes is to you know, recover wife and children and all the spoils that, uh, that they have. But along this pursuit, uh, going towards the Amalekites, 200 of the 600 men get too weary. They get too tired. And they stay behind. And they, uh, the other 400 men lighten their loads, and they go off to battle, continuing to pursue the Amalekites. But the 200 other people, they just stay there and watch the supplies. They stay there and they camp out until they come back. And David and his 400 men, they attack the Amalekites. They recover all the women and children that had been taken, as well as the spoils from the victory. And now David and his 400 men, they head back. And this is where we'll pick up in 1 Samuel 30. Uh, verses 21 through 25. It says, So now, now David came to the 200 men who had been uh, so weary that they could not follow David, whom they had also made stay at the brook Besser. So when they went to meet David and, the, and meet the people who were with him, and when David came near, to, near the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men of those who were with David answered and saying, Because he did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. So here we have the 400 men who were fighting alongside David, now refusing to share the spoil uh, with the other 200 men who stayed behind because they didn't do the hard and dirty work. They didn't fight the fight like we did. They aren't deserving of the spoil, they said to David. They can have their wife and children back, but nothing more. The rest of that spoil is us. We're going to split that up amongst ourselves. And in our minds, that might sound reasonable, but it's interesting that these 400 men who didn't want to share the spoil, David references them as wicked and worthless men, and that David's response to their comments is probably not what we would have expected, but I, I, I think and I believe that this reflects the same heart and attitude that God has towards us in the distribution of rewards. Because David says in response, my brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us. Who has preserved us and delivered us, or delivered into our hand the troops that came against us? For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. So it was from that day forward he made a statute and an ordinance for Israel to that day. So David makes this profound statement that those who stayed back with the supplies and those who continued on in battle are equal. They are both equally important. Some had been more uh, in a physically challenging role. Yes, those who had fought at war definitely had a more physical aspect to it. But in God's eyes, all of them are equally deserving of that spoil, that reward. 
Because if it were not for those who stayed behind, those who went to battle would have not had the strength or maybe as much uh, freedom because they had that pack they were holding on to. And had those who not held on to the supplies watched over it, you wouldn't have allowed you know, for them to come back to such a, uh, you know, all their stuff being there. So no matter what role they had, they all had an equal importance there, and they were all equally deserving of that spoil. And so David makes this uh, statute, this ordinance, that Israel uh, would follow from this time on. But it's interesting because even this was not the first time. Uh, back in the Old Testament, even farther in Numbers, after the Israelites defeat the Midianites in battle, there's this huge plunder, and they receive uh, tons of, tons of uh, wealth from the Midianites. And God specifically made this instruction to Moses on how to divide it up. He tells them in Numbers 31, 27, divide the plunder into two parts between those who took part in the war, who went out to battle, and all the congregation. So God made it clear that whether you stayed in the camp or whether you were off to battle, everyone was equally deserving. Everyone equally split that plunder, that reward from their enemies. And in the same sense, it's true about the church. We are all members of the same body. We ultimately all have the same goal in mind. We all have different gifts, different roles, different strengths that God has given us. But all of us use our differences to serve him. One might be a mouth, one might be an ear, one might be a foot, one might be an eye. But no matter what part you play in the body of Christ, Paul tells us that though some parts may look weaker, every part is needed. That those things that may seem less honorable will receive great honor. Practically speaking, that means that God has given some of us the gift of speaking, the gift of preaching. He's given some people the gift of hospitality or evangelism or encouragement or administration. Some people are behind-the-scenes workers. They set up every day for a church. They open and unlock the doors. Some people pray for you. Maybe they don't even have a role at the church, but they just pray constantly. Behind the scenes, no one even knows it's happening, but they pray for the church each and every week. Some people give financially, and you never would know it, but they give faithfully every week for the Lord so that those who are in maybe more public roles can serve the Lord more effectively or so that the gospel can go out in a more public way. Maybe you're put to schedule together. Maybe you help in audio. No matter what your role is, they are all equally valuable in allowing and freeing up the time for other people to do their role more effectively. Every role is important, and every role frees up the other person to do their role more effectively. We are all members of the same body. We all have the same goal. Our goal is to see the gospel go out. Our goal is to see souls saved. And once those souls are saved, we want them to live on a life of godliness, a life that brings God honor. The Apostle Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 6-8, I planted, Apollo watered, but God gave the increase, so that neither he who plants is anything, nor is he who waters, but God gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his reward according to his own labor. You know, as you think back on people who have gotten saved, rarely does anyone ever get saved uh, upon hearing the gospel for the first time. Usually it's a collective effort of multiple people witnessing. Someone was planting, someone was watering, someone was sowing seed. And yet in the end, it was God who saved them. And even though God saves them, God then rewards us, though, equally as workers because we both played a role in seeing that person uh, 
come towards that realization that they needed a Savior. They both labored in the same field. They both had the same purpose, and therefore, in God's eyes, they are both deserving of reward for their work. Ultimately, it's not the person who's here at the pulpit or the person uh, who, who does uh, the most vocal things that receives the highest award. And it's not the person who's at home who's praying for the church quietly behind the scenes who receives a lesser reward. They are all equal in their reward. And it's God who ultimately gets the glory for it because he brings forth the increase from his field. And with all that in mind, it's understandable why it says, therefore, the first shall be last and the last first. Because I believe when we get to heaven, there will be many unsung labors, many unsung heroes in the church that will be finally acknowledged for their service, that will finally be rewarded for their work behind the scenes that they quietly did all along the way. And so the takeaway is that no matter what role you serve, whether you serve the Lord full-heartedly in public ministry or privately, whether you're an evangelist, a preacher, whether you work totally behind the scenes or you're totally publicly, we are all members of the same body set out to accomplish a similar goal. And so let us do so faithfully until he comes and let us leave the reward up to him and trust that he will be gracious and he will decide the reward for our service graciously. Let's just pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we're uh, just so thankful that we have this opportunity to be laborers in your field, that we can serve you, Lord, wholeheartedly. And Lord, we can just trust that, Lord, you'll be gracious with us and you'll be more than fair with us. And Lord, we look forward to the day when we can finally be with you in heaven, face to face. Lord, we look forward to that day. And Lord, we, uh, in the meantime, just want to serve you uh, until that day comes. In your name we pray. Amen.